Welcome to Hancock Talks, your source for insights about life insurance trends and opportunities with a focus on tactics that can help drive your sales. This podcast is for financial professional use only. It is not intended for use with the public. This material is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide advice. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of John Hancock. Please listen to the important disclosures at the end of this podcast. This episode was recorded on January 5th, 2024. Now, let's get started with our host today, AVP and Counsel, Head of Advanced Markets, Carly Brooks. Hello, and welcome to Hancock Talks, and thanks for being with us today. Today, we're joined by Kevin Blanton, my colleague and an Associate Counsel in our Advanced Markets Group. Kevin has been with John Hancock for more than 20 years, and prior to that, he spent more than a decade in private practice in estate and tax planning in the Boston area. Kevin is no stranger to Hancock Talks or to sharing ideas that translate into sales opportunities. I'm super excited to have him on our show today to talk about the top legislative trends that we're keeping an eye on and some of those advanced planning themes that we're likely to see resonate in 2024. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Carly. It's a pleasure. Well, let's jump right in and talk a little bit about wealth transfer planning. I know this is always a big focus area for ours in advanced markets. And for those that might not know, one of Kevin's hobbies is actually calculating those estate tax exemptions as early as possible. (laughs) I know, Kevin, you try to get those out in the fall. And we were correct again this year in projecting that number late last fall. But let's comment a little bit on some of those recent inflation adjustments. In particular, what's happening with the lifetime exemption? Right. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a sickness, but uh, I'm compelled to do what I do. Uh, as uh, most of our listeners already know, how we calculate the lifetime exemption, what we used to call the unified credit, was changed as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. The base exemption that we start with went from a $5 million exemption to a $10 million exemption. Big jump there, double And then that base is in index for inflation after 2010. And what does that mean today? Today in 2024, the amount that can be transferred during a lifetime or at death aggregated, that's where the unified credit comes in, is 13610000 per person. And because the transfer tax system treats a married couple for many purposes as one unit, that means that a married couple can transfer together $27,220,000. That's the largest exemption in history, which, uh, of course, they do go up. But the last two increases because of a short life spike in uh, inflation over, over the last two years have been the largest two increases ever as well. Well, that's great for now, but the talk of the industry really is that uh, many of the provisions of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act are scheduled to sunset by operation of law at midnight on December 31st, 2025. And that includes this lifetime exemption. And what that means is that it will revert back to the preceding level, namely the, the $5 million exemption, of course, still adjusted for inflation after 2010. What's that going to be? Well, you know, no one knows the future, but if we assume just for our purposes that inflation over the next two years will continue at roughly our current trends, then that would result in approximately 7300000 exemption. I mean, we'll have to wait and see what really happens, of course, but that's 
the ballpark. I should say it's it's worth mentioning also that the exemption didn't just change. The the base exemption didn't just change, but the measure of inflation that we use to adjust it every year changed in 2017 too. And by the way, that will not sunset. That change in the measure of inflation, our chain CPI, will continue to be the measure that we use. Generally speaking, the new measure is more conservative than the old straight consumer price index uh, inflation adjustment. And it, generally speaking, produces smaller changes compared to the old measure. Many economists feel that it's a, a more accurate a more meaningful measure of actual inflation. I'm one of those. I, I agree that this is, is usually a better measure than what we were using before. So Kevin, I find that that's interesting because when you think about inflation, this is actually kind of an area where inflation actually helps us, where we're seeing an increase in the exemption of you know, $690,000 from last year. And I think it's interesting that you say that this new measure is actually a more conservative number. So it just goes to show that that high inflationary period we were in really did have a direct impact on those increases in the exemptions that we're seeing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, imagine what it would have been. I mean, I can calculate it, but we had almost a $900,000 increase before. The the increases are, are larger than what the exemption used to be not that long ago. Exactly. So... Like I said, the uh, increases that would have been resulted from a straight CPI calculation would have been just ridiculous and out of uh, out of all measure. Now, the the consequence of this is that I mean, if we think of this, and at the end of 2025, the sunset occurs; those uh, base amounts get cut in half and adjusted going forward. But that means necessarily that more individuals are going to be subject to estate tax. So. We're seeing a lot of urgency to plan right now with the tax laws as they exist right now before these opportunities are lost in the sunset. Once that exemption goes down, it's gone. You won't have that to use anymore. If you use it before, the pronouncements of the IRS have been clear that those will be locked in. You won't lose those except in some marginal circumstances. Based on our current projections in the last moments of 2025, married taxpayers will have a gross joint gifting exemption in the neighborhood of $29 million. And in the first moments of 2026, that will be halved. The estate tax on that difference, I think, is significant to pretty much every taxpayer. Oh, and I should mention also, I always forget to mention this, but it's worth remembering that the generation skipping transfer tax exemption is determined by reference to the lifetime exemption amount, which means that it is going up in exactly the same amounts as the lifetime exemption. And at the moment of sunset, that same reduction will occur in the GST exemption as well. That will be lost. So the collected tax effect of the lost opportunity for GST and estate tax is potentially huge. Exactly. And it's a good reminder on the GST exemption too, because I think sometimes we forget about that. Just to summarize, Kevin, that that really helpful overview. So we have the largest exemption in history of $13,610,000, but we know that that exemption is set to expire by law. So it's that much talked about sunset that's going to occur at the end of 2025. 
It's now 2024. It seems like we've been talking about the sunset and not waiting to plan urgency. Um, How do we keep clients from procrastinating for five years, six years? The clock has been ticking. But in many respects, I think 2024 might be the apex of wealth transfer planning. So we're in this really unique environment where the sunset is just around the corner. It's less than two years away. But there's still going to be some urgency. There's still going to be some hesitation, I think, from some clients. So can you comment a little bit on the sunset, understanding that we're heading into a presidential election year? I know something else you like to keep your pulse check on is is the election cycles. And I think a lot of that will depend on who is in control. But what do you think will happen? Do you think the sunset will actually take effect? And what, what might that look like? Yeah, first of all, your comment's dead on. I mean, those who were doing this back in 2009, the last time we went through this, 2009, 2010, and 11. And in those years, we saw exactly the same thing with clients. They will believe what they want to believe, regardless of what is likely or what is what is reality in some circumstances. And we're, we're seeing some of that now. I mean, the sunset will happen if nothing else happens to stop it. It will happen by operation of law. The law today says that the exemption on the first seconds of 2026 will be $5 million adjusted for inflation. So unless Congress takes some action before that, that is what's going to happen. And I think it's not too cynical to point out that if Congress does nothing, it will automatically get more money to work with. All they have to do is nothing, and they will get more money. Now, what's really going to happen? Is Congress going to change that? Well, that'll depend, as, as you point out, in what the political landscape looks like in the coming couple of years. And like you said, 2024 is a presidential election year. I would add to that as well that uh, 2024 is an election in which every single seat in the House of Representatives is up for a re-election, and 24 of the seats in the, of the 100 seats in the Senate are up for re-election, 13 governorships as well. So what's going to happen? I think anybody who tells you that they know what's going to happen is either lying or mistaken. But it's hard to imagine under the current environment where in the House of Representatives, the Republicans have a, a, a majority of only seven members. The, uh, the Democrats, if you combine them with uh, independents, have a majority of one. (laughs) That's not an environment where you have a lot of room to get things wrong. You can't really take a lot of chances there. And it's kind of hard in this environment as well to imagine that either party will acquire enough power to implement significant changes over the predictable objections of the other party. But it's not impossible. So is it going to happen? Is the sunset going to happen? couple of different schools of thought on that. I mean, on, on the one hand, it is a historical fact that once the exemption has increased, it has never decreased. If we go back to the last sunset in 2011, the exemption actually went up. It was changed by Congress, but it went up instead of down. So that was a little bit of a different environment. It, uh, if it had sunset, it would have gone down to a just ridiculously low amount that was unrealistic. But that is a reality. We have a very, very different scenario right now. I mean, the political environment was different back then. We have macroeconomic conditions in the U.S. very different from then. 
global challenges, global wars going on, very different political tenor as well. That, I think, uh, makes it hard to look at the past and, uh, and take any guidance from that as to whether or not that's going to tell us what's going to happen now. I think allowing the sunset to happen also is going to allow many, many other provisions apart from estate tax uh, lifetime exemption from going back to what it was before. Virtually all of the provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act the tax provisions will sunset at the end of 2025, pretty much everything except the uh, corporate tax rates. So that could have an impact as as well. I mean, uh, all of those changes are going to have a much broader and more immediate impact on the entire electorate, except uh, rather than just the estate tax, which really only impacts at last calculation 0.2 of 1% of a the electorate. So anyway, long uh, long story short, I'm just saying we don't know what's going to happen, but if I only had a dollar to bet, I would be putting my money on the exemption sunsetting. You and me both, Kevin. I think if I were a gambling person, which I'm not, I, but I, I think I would put my money on, this, on the exemption sunsetting as well. And you make a good point too, that when you think about some of the politics of this, it, it becomes very complicated to envision a, a scenario where even in the right political landscape, right. we would be able to retain all of the provisions. It would look like a completely different type of tax legislation. And there is, I think, more incentive in some regards to look at things that might impact sort of the more broad American versus the ultra high net worth or high net worth client where the estate tax exemption is coming into play. So things like that 199 cap A deduction has a lot of traction for small business owners and many of the individual income tax provisions as well. Right. And at the end of the day, you know, we talk about this a lot. We could sit and pontificate all day about what might happen with tax laws. And we do that a lot in advanced markets. But predicting taxes is a lot like predicting the weather. Ultimately, we don't really know what's going to happen. And I think the message, too, is that we have to plan with what's on the table today while preserving flexibility for some of those future adjustments, recognizing that it's hard to predict what tax laws might look like in the future. And something else I've been hearing, too, Kevin, is that many of our partners at RIF and SECA talk about this a lot, is as Congress becomes more educated about some of these different types of techniques, it's possible that we could see some of those tools also change and their practicality might change over time, too. So I think the morale here is trying to get clients to move forward, understanding that we have these great tools at our disposal. So what should we be doing now? Where, where are you seeing the opportunities? What are some of the things that you would recommend if you were the one working with the client and trying to create some of that urgency? And what should we be doing now to be prepared for that sunset? Well, I think, uh, first of all, just to reiterate uh, a point that you just made, we have to work with what we have right now. We have we have laws right now. As an old uh, mentor of mine said many, many years ago, the, the perfect plan allows you to walk out of my office and get hit by a bus, but it doesn't require it. I mean, you, you should be able to live at least a, a couple more years. So really what we're looking for is for clients to get their planning done today before the opportunity is lost, but build flexibility into their planning so that when things change, as they always do, you won't have to burn the whole thing down and start over again. It'll be flexible enough to deal with the laws as we have them today and what they may or might even be likely to change into in the future. I think uh, the first thing we need to stress almost more than anything else to clients today is 
get started. They need to be talking to their planners, their tax and legal professionals, their their attorneys now to get this going, not only because they really should be taking action now to make sure that nothing happens to affect their insurability, to uh, other changes like that, but also, very importantly, everyone else is in the same boat. We're, uh, we're hearing already that attorneys and other uh, planners are getting booked up and they really need to, the clients really need to get in line now, get, uh, get this going so that it does get done before the opportunities are lost. Yeah, absolutely. And I was talking to an attorney today, they were saying, you know, while drafting the trust itself might not take that long, if you don't already have that pre-existing relationship with the attorney, one year out, they might be so busy that they're not going to be taking new clients. And so talking to the estate planning attorney today and trying to make that connection and relationship so that when the time comes, you're able to move quickly is, is going to be key. Yeah. I've, I ran into a, a couple of old colleagues of mine who actually said in so many words, they weren't going to holiday parties because they can't afford to take on any new business. <laughs> Already that's happening. Many of the things that we need to be talking to clients about right now are things that we really should be all of the time. It's just really underscored now. I mean, change is permanent. It's, it's going to happen and it's going to happen and it's going to happen again. So the flexibility that we're talking about is not a new requirement. It's just one that's being underscored by current circumstances. Clients need to be thinking about the easy and the hard things that their planning is going to be requiring. Their legacy goals. I mean, apart from just passing the, uh, the most of their estate that they can net of estate taxes, how do they want that to be structured? Legacy planning for the next generations and for charities uh, and the like, they need to be thinking about their own liquidity needs because, frankly, life is complicated and it's unpredictable. So moving forward, they need to be taking the steps that they need to to put the planning in place, but not plan themselves poor. I think it's very uh, important as well for clients who are planning to be talking to the rest of their family as well. And quite frankly, for those listening to this recording here, for you to be talking to your clients about other generations as well. Uh, You can't really know that you're helping your clients' beneficiaries unless you plan for those beneficiaries also. And you can't know that you're not creating more problems for them. Uh, It also helps to create and strengthen future client relationships as well. But but primarily the reason is that you're not really helping the client unless you're helping their beneficiaries. We need to be sure to remind clients that they shouldn't let the tax tail wag the life and estate planning dog. Uh, tax, taxes are only one aspect of this. So their tax planning should be consistent with and dovetail together with their actual life goals and what they, what they want for their beneficiaries. I mean, the... Uh, The flexibility aspect is really the major portion of this. Being able to take steps today to protect against changes, but still plan for the uh, tax laws today. What we usually talk about, the use of spousal lifetime access trusts, uh, wait and see loans, standby trusts, all of those tools that we have in the toolbox that come in and out of favor from one year to the next, all very important right now. Definitely. I think flexible trust funding is going to 
be a real theme. And it's been one, you know, sort of same thing I've been talking about last year. We've been talking about it for multiple years now, but how do you get clients to move forward? One of those reasons is by giving them some level of access. So thinking about flexible trust language, like spousal access provisions or flexible trust funding, where you mentioned a a wait and see loan. That's that idea that you can make a lump sum loan to the gift at the AFR rate. The trustee can take those funds, invest them, leverage them to purchase life insurance inside of the trust. And the grantor is going to get back interest on that note and ultimately receives the principal back. But at any point in time, they can rip up the promissory note and make a gift. And so some of those types of ideas allow you to separate the liquidity part of the plan from the broader estate plan, which can be helpful as well. I talked about that a lot last year is this idea of funding the insurance need now and then maybe making the decision around gifting later. But if you fund the insurance piece through something like a wait and see loan, you can act very quickly if tax laws change. So if the client doesn't want to gift the premiums, they can instead loan the premiums and then later next year opt to make a gift of the loan forgiveness. So ideas like that, I think will continue to really gain traction. Right. And then when we think about estate planning more broadly, Kevin, just looking at the different use cases for life insurance, one thing I've been focused a lot on as well is thinking about different client profiles that we might be working on. So some of those key questions to ask, maybe just take a couple of those. So if you're working with, for example, a client that owns unique assets, like let's say commercial real estate or intangible property or or something like that, what would be some of the questions you'd ask the clients or what are some of the planning opportunities that you might see? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, legacy planning all by itself is is complicated, just as all of this is, but in its own special way. I mean, goals can shift and clients can change their mind. So in a sense, uh, flexibility is just as important here as it is in every other aspect of the planning. But it is important to look at individual beneficiaries and individual assets to see what kind of special planning you might need to provide in that circumstance. For Beneficiaries, for instance, as planners, we need to consider the unique characteristics of the beneficiaries. We may have uh, blended marriages with children from the marriage itself, but who came to the marriage with the uh, with the parties. Uh, we may have spendthrift beneficiaries, special needs beneficiaries. Uh, one that I think uh, doesn't get nearly enough attention either is families with beneficiaries spread across multiple states, which is more the rule than the exception these days. So the, the planning must really should consider state taxes as well and whether we're going to do outright gifts or a, a central trust, which is cited with, with that in mind. The asset a- aspect of that, the a- asset version of that, just as important. I mean, if you're transferring a, a block of money, it's one thing. But if you're transferring a business that was started by the grandparents or real estate, and all real estate isn't created equally. I mean, I think if you think of the Kennedy compound on uh, on Cape Cod, that's not just a house. I mean, it's a it's it's a family asset that has a, a history all its own. Different heirloom assets as well, like uh, like valuable art or a beloved vacation home. Those are aspects which uh, I think need particular attention in talking to clients. I got my hair cut on on Wednesday. My barber knows what I do for a living, and and uh, I spent the entire haircut talking about the people who were involved in his grandparents' business. Uh, he had started his own barber shop, but uh, so he wasn't involved in that one. But how is it going to get divided up, and how are we going to make sure that the people who want to be involved in the business are and and the like? So these are real 
real issues that affect a lot of people. And I think that's that's something we need to take uh, some attention to. Absolutely. So switching gears, last year we saw a renewed focus on planning for business owners. And I read that by 2030, the U.S. could be facing a deficit of more than 6 million skilled workers. Can you talk a little bit about that, Kevin? Do you think that trend is going to continue into 2024? And if so, what are some of the planning strategies or concepts that might resonate as we think about how to retain some of those key executives? Oh, sure. I think we generally, even in the average year, don't pay enough attention to our business clients, that they're the most uh, underserved or or they get less of, of the attention than many of our other aspects of our job in helping clients. And yes, I absolutely think that is going to be just as important, if not more so, in the coming years. We've seen what's happened over the last, especially the last year, as the skilled labor market continues to tighten and small business owners are constantly looking for ways to uh, help acquire talent, uh, reward their existing employees, and, and try to hang on to the talent that they have. This is being recorded on uh, January 5th. A uh, jobs report came out just this morning, which managed to surprise us yet again that that, uh, jobs are being created faster than uh, labor is entering or staying in the market. So very much I see that that's something that still exists and is only going to get more important. Many of the tools that, uh, that we've always, always used become more or less comparatively uh, attractive based on interest rates. Interest rates may have gone up over the last year or two, but they're still at relatively low rates. The use of loan regimes, split dollar, for instance, in, in an environment like the, the current environment, still continues to be a very attractive strategy for both for-profit and non-profit companies looking to attract and retain their executives. Uh, we have a lot of a lot of tools in the toolbox for that. That's certainly very high on on the list of those. But I think in uh, in our our environment as well in our office, we're seeing a lot of attention from uh, small business owners uh, looking at what you might term a voluntary benefit product, which is permanent uh, portable life insurance that it's both employee owned and employee paid. But it's provided through an introduction at the employer level, and that allows the smaller business owners to enhance the total benefit package uh, to their employees at little to no cost to the business owner themselves. Exactly. So there's a whole slew of options available, I think, depending on who you're trying to retain, whether it's one or two executives that you want to provide some non-qualified deferred compensation benefits to, or more broadly, things like voluntary benefits can be a really unique way to provide that additional retention. Along the lines of business planning, succession planning for the owner is also really critical. And I think for our listeners that are also money managers or or work with money managers in their practice, getting in front of those clients now is so important. When you think about the number one source of net AUM to a firm, it's oftentimes liquidity from the sale of a business. And so when we're helping them on the insurance side, structuring those succession plans at the outset is really important and timely. I think when we talk about 
New Year's resolutions. I always mention it's a good time to double check all of those buy-sell reviews and policies that might be enforced and make sure that buy-sell reviews are up to up to snuff and funded adequately. And so when we think about using life insurance as a tool for succession planning um, and funding buy-sells, Kevin, I'd love for you to talk about the very interesting and exciting development that's happening in the world of buy-sell planning. We don't see a lot of action in this space, but last year we saw the U.S. v. Connolly case heard by the Eighth Circuit. That case is now going to the Supreme Court. What does Connolly mean and what do you predict with Connolly before the Supreme Court and how might that impact the future of entity redemption buy-sell planning? Oh boy, you're going to get me started now. This I knew I'd get you excited uh, on that one. <laughs> this was this case uh, came out of left field, quite frankly. It it surprised an awful lot of people. I think as as most of the listeners who are involved in succession planning already appreciate, most of succession planning, uh, buy sell planning, that is, which isn't all succession planning, but it's it's a large portion of it can be divided into entity redemption or cross-purchase. So it's all just a matter of who's actually buying out the owner that's leaving. The entity redemption, of course, is, as the name implies, that's one where the, the company buys out the owner that's leaving or has died. The economy cases, and, and in an entity redemption, typically there's life insurance that provides the liquidity to the company to have the uh, ability to exercise their obligations under the agreement and purchase the shares from a decedent's estate, for instance. The issue that came up in the Connolly case has to do with that funding liquidity from life insurance. Now, historically, we have all functioned under both just historical belief, which was supported by case law, that the value of the life insurance coming into the company would gross up the value of that company for buy-sell purposes, but the obligation that the company has to use that death benefit to purchase shares from a decedent's estate serves as a cost against the company, a deduction that the company can take against its value because it is contractually obligated to spend that money. That, if the life insurance is designed properly, that should wipe out the value of that life insurance death benefit in the valuation of the company. The Connolly case out of the 8th District Court of Appeals back in June, however, decided otherwise. This is one of those cases where the old adage of hard cases make bad law is certainly illustrated. The taxpayers in the Connolly case did nothing right, virtually nothing right. They did not treat their own buy-sell agreement as a contract. They ignored most of its provisions during the life. They never got the valuations they were supposed to at the end of each year. When one of the two brothers who owned the company died, they completely ignored the provisions of the buy-sell as to what they were to do then and just transferred ownership of the interest to one of the uh, children of the owners. The 8th District Court of Appeals looked at this case and said, the buy-sell agreement was not really a contract that they could exclude the value of the life insurance from the value of the company because it didn't create a foreseeable, a quantifiable charge against the value of the company. And then they went on to say, and what's more, we don't think that the value of the life insurance should ever be accepted 
you know, from the valuation of the company. It was that last part. We were all with them up to that point. But it was <laughs> because, frankly, the clients didn't do what they should have. It was that last part that surprised everyone. And that's what's thrown a lot of planning into disarray because many people who are doing buy-sell planning right now are fearful that entity redemption is no longer on the table the way that it was before. But Carly, as you pointed out, the uh, Supreme Court has agreed to hear the case. They'll be hearing that case in the, across the spring. We should have a decision on that by early to mid-summer. And I think what most practitioners and commentators are expecting to happen is that decision will be overturned. We don't know what, how that's going to turn. We can't see the future, but it would surprise me if that were upheld. In the meantime, we have alternatives for those clients who are concerned about the, the Connolly decision and, and what's going to happen. We can turn to the insurance LLC, for instance, so without going into how that function as an alternative is one that we see a lot of clients find attractive as an alternative to entity redemption. It accomplishes many of the same goals just through a slightly different path with uh, many of the same benefits. Right, exactly. I think when you look at the options that might be on the table, sometimes looking at something like a trustee or an LLC to help manage those policies might be more efficient than using an entity redemption to begin with. But I think what we've learned from Connolly, if anything thus far, is that while the jury's still out on whether or not entity redemptions need to be revised or re-looked at, I think the lesson today is that we need to be making sure that we're following the formalities of our agreements. And so whether that's ensuring that the valuation component is being done accurately. So in the Connolly case where they were required both during life as well as at death to get those qualified appraisals and never did that, that was really, I think, one of the key points is that if you're not going to follow the formalities of your own agreement, then why should we expect the IRS to and you're not going to get that offsetting deduction? So very important, I think, as we're looking again towards New Year's resolutions, helping clients with a buy-sell plan and asking some of those questions like, do you have one in place? Is it funded? Taking a look at the terms to make sure that there are provisions that should be included in there on triggering events and, and things like that are really key. And we have a lot of questions in our advanced markets team that can help with some of that fact-finding. So definitely reach out if that's of interest. So Kevin, just kind of switching gears a little bit, and I know we're wrapping up our starting to wrap up our show today. So on the trend of legislative updates and things that we're keeping an eye on, there's a few things happening that we want to keep an eye on. I'll just spend a second to summarize a couple of those items. The big one at the federal level is DOL 3.0. So the Department of Labor is introducing a new fiduciary rule. We're waiting to see if that will be implemented. And if so, what impact that might have on certain types of recommendations, particularly as it relates to advice regarding IRAs and qualified plans and some of those rollover recommendations. So keeping a close eye on what might happen there. And then at the state level, state-mandated long-term care programs are likely to become more prevalent. And so we're keeping a close eye on what's happening at the state level, states like California, really at the forefront following in Washington's footsteps and more to come on what might be happening. But I think that kind of drives home something that, Kevin, I know has always been a passion point of yours, which is planning for that need around long-term care and having that conversation and not necessarily having to rely on state-funded programs to help provide that care. So those are some trends that we're seeing legislatively. And I know we covered a lot today, but the good news is there's so much to be talking about, I think, as it relates to advanced planning. So whether it's 
planning towards the sunset of the exemption and thinking about how to build in tax diversification strategies or getting clients to move forward with their estate planning, as well as some of these legislative trends and the Connolly case. So many exciting things happening. And I do want to just wrap up our show today, Kevin, by thanking you for not only your time today, but for really the legacy that you've left for us with Advanced Markets. And so as we wrap up our show today, I'm not sure if all of our listeners know, but I want to share with our listeners some bittersweet news that you'll be retiring from John Hancock Advanced Markets in March. And you've been with John Hancock for over 20 years, and your impact and legacy is going to certainly live on. Many of our listeners, myself included, have learned so much from you over the years. And so before we conclude our show today, I thought it might be fun for you to share a memory or two, or maybe a case that sticks out or some piece of advice or wisdom that you'd like to, to leave us with. Oh, boy, me. That, <laughs> yeah, it has, it has been almost a quarter of a century now, and that's a lot of action, a lot of huge things that we've seen. I can't tell you how honored I've been to be a part of this team. Big cases. Oh, boy, me. There, there are so many. <laughs> I, I will tell you that having the IRS drop the the new split dollar rules in our lap, just out of the blue. No one saw that coming. And and then new regulations came out. I spent a long holiday weekend in the office summarizing hundreds and hundreds of pages of regulations with my kids watching cartoons on a TV in my office. So many large things have happened. It, it's impossible for me to choose one or even just a couple but just to repeat myself, it has been the honor of my career to be a member of this team and, and a part of this company. So uh, before I get emotional, I think it's probably best if I just leave it at that. Well, thank you, Kevin. The honor is ours. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Hopefully you learned something that you can take with you into 2024 to help grow your practice. And if there are any questions, you know where to find Kevin and myself and our advanced markets team is always here to help. Kevin, thanks for joining us. We wish you well. Thank you, Carly. And thank you all. And we appreciate you joining us for this episode of Hancock Talks. For more resources on today's topic and access to more information about how to grow your insurance business, visit jhsaleshub.com. And don't forget to download and subscribe to the show to get new episodes as they become available. Thanks for listening. For the statistic, by 2030, the U.S. could be facing a deficit of more than 6 million skilled workers is from Navigating the Great Accountant Shortage of 2023. Multiplier, usemultiplier.com. This information is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a recommendation of any particular product or is providing advice. Clients should consult with their own independent professionals regarding their own individual circumstances. Trusts should be drafted by an attorney familiar with such matters in order to take into account income and estate tax laws, including the generation skipping tax. Failure to do so could result in adverse tax treatment of trust proceeds. There can be costs associated with drafting a trust. Comments on taxation are based on John Hancock's understanding of current tax law, which is subject to change. This material does not constitute tax, legal, investment, or accounting advice. It is not intended for use by the taxpayer for the purposes of avoiding any IRS penalty. Comments on taxation are based on tax law current as of the time we produce the material. All information and materials provided by John Hancock are to support the marketing and sale of our products and services and are not intended to be impartial advice or recommendations. John Hancock 
Hancock and its representatives will receive compensation from such sales or services. Anyone interested in these transactions or topics may want to seek advice based on their particular circumstances from independent professionals. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of John Hancock. These opinions are subject to change and there is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Any discussion of features, values, or benefits are not guaranteed and may be subject to change. Life insurance products are issued by John Hancock Life Insurance Company, USA, Boston, Mass, 02116, not licensed in New York, and John Hancock Life Insurance Company of New York, Valhalla, New York, 10595. This recorded material may have been recorded to support the promotion or marketing of the topics addressed in this recorded material. Individuals interested in the topics discussed should consult with independent professionals to examine legal, tax, accounting, or financial aspects of these topics. MLINY 01042405